0: Hi, and welcome to The Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. With me today on the podcast is a very special guest. His name is Angelo Rossetti. He's the director of tennis at the Weston Racquet Club, the president of the USTA for Connecticut, He's a two time tennis world record holder, which I know we're going to definitely touch on and talk about. Really amazing stories and insights. And also the author of the new book called Tenacity The Tenacious Mindset on and Off the Courts. Angelo, welcome to the show. Really happy to have you.
1: Good to be here. I've listened to your uh, podcast before. Big fan of yours and what Essential Tennis is doing. So i um, excited to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. Honestly, I'm a little disappointed in myself that it's taken this long for you and I to have a conversation on the podcast because we've sat down and talked many times together face-to-face and we've had a lot of great phone conversations. I really I love your energy and your optimism, your positivity. I love the message that you have, Angelo. So so thank you for thank s- you. taking the time to spend with our audience today. I'm really looking forward to our, our conversation a lot.
1: That's great. Yes, me too. And it's well needed considering what's going on in the world right now. So it's certainly a, a good place to focus, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, no question about that. Yeah. So for that reason, especially, I'm really thrilled to have you. Tell us about... Well, go ahead and start where you'd like to start. But what I was going to open with, tell us about three, two, one. What is what is that principle? What does it mean for you, and why do you feel like it's so important?
1: Yeah. So um, uh, a couple years ago, I came up with this teaching method called <laughs> method, which is based on having the right mindset and you know your mental game, working on your mental skills like awareness and focus and concentration. Um really, controlling the controllables, being aware of what you can't control and 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 not worrying about those. And um, you know it's definitely inspired from uh, the book uh, in, in Tim Galway's book, The Inner Game of Tennis, The Inner Game, and then um, more recently by Sean Brawley, who um, mentored uh, with uh, Tim, and then I mentored with uh, Sean. And, um, kind of, you know, came up with this three, two, one message on said, "Hey, why don't you, you know, come up with something and make it your own. And, you know, I, I've been a certified uh, teacher, uh, USPTA for almost 25 years. It's crazy. It's gone by so fast and also PTR. Um, and, I and you know, you always want to look at how you can improve as a coach and a teacher because the more you're looking to improve as a coach and a teacher, and I know you feel the same way, the more that your students would benefit from you. So, um, you know, I was looking for something to really um, try to crystallize and quantify uh, the mental game or your mindset because it seems very um, intangible. And it's interesting, Ian, because, you know, of all the athletes, tennis players and athletes that I talk to that are really passionate about their sport, you know, passionate about tennis, let's say, for tennis players, um, they're they're athletes. They might not make money, but they sometimes dedicate themselves the same or or more than professional paid athletes. And Mm. so then you say, hey – you know, what, how important is the physical game or physical practice or lessons versus the mental game? You know, when everybody says, Oh, you know, the the question I usually answer, I get back is uh, about 50%, you know, uh, important. Sometimes people say it's 90% as, you know, Joe Gilbert had that, that funny quote, you know, um uh you know 50% of the the game is 80% mental or something like that and <laughs> yeah. uh you know and so basically he's saying that it's 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 more mental than physical and and i've had upwards of even 90% of the game is mental especially in competition or on big points so then i say okay well how many hours a week do you practice your physical game your strokes your grip your technique your finish you know, your movement, you know, the physical part of the game. And most people say, okay, about, let's say six hours a week, eight hours a week, 58 hours a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. Great. Then I ask, okay, now on the mental game, uh, you know, how how many hours a week do you focus on your mental game? And I get zero most of the time, or sometimes the half hour, the most I've really ever gotten is, is like two hours a week of, of the six or eight or 10. So that's, that's between one and twenty percent maximum, and, and no one has ever answered to me the question of "Oh, it's only twenty percent you know important." So people know it's important, so they comprehend that the mental game in tennis is important, but there's a difference distinct difference between comprehension and retention. And what I realize is retention comes with deliberate, mindful practice. If you're not deliberately practicing on your mindset and your mental game, you're really not practicing your mental game at all. And that's dangerous because then when you get to a match, you think you're prepared mentally for the big points and you're not. So it's it's almost worse. It's rather to pretend that you're not prepared at all and you stand a better chance of thinking that you're somewhat prepared. Um, and the mental game for me has been a huge focus of mine because I started tennis late. Um, even though I started table tennis or ping pong with my identical twin brother, Etchere, in, in my um, grandfather's basement, I was I was three years old. And every week on Sundays, we'd, we'd go over to his house after church on Sundays and we would play table tennis. It was one of my fondest, earliest memories. And I would play the game the way tennis is played. So I'd hold the paddle the way tennis is. Uh, you hold a tennis racket because I watched tennis on TV a lot. My parents were big fans of the game. And so I watched tennis on TV. I played a lot of table tennis, but I never actually played or competed in tennis until I was about 15 going into my junior year of high school. So I didn't have strokes. I didn't have necessarily the right grip or finish. Now I do, but back then when I started, I didn't. And, um, my best friend, Rob had encouraged my, both my brother and I to try out for our high school tennis team, our junior year. So, uh, you know, I had a crash. I would play every day with my brother till, you know, 11 PM at night on our outdoor courts. And then when the lights shut off automatically, we'd drive about 35 minutes to local, other local courts. And that timer went off at about 2 AM. we we'd play for hours. <laughs> we loved it. Uh, it was really fun. We had this great game of you, had a, you couldn't stop until you ended on a winner, and one of us had to hit a winner, so that's why we're diving on the ground. No, I touched it. you got to keep going. You know, It's not a clean winner. So we had so much fun. I think uh, part of it is really having an accountability partner in tennis to really get your game to excel. There's very few people that can do it by themselves. You, you need someone to keep you accountable, and you keep them accountable, and that's what I had in my brother and not really realizing it at the time. Well, my mental game was all I had. My focus, my effort, um, running down every ball. I, I was fairly quick, um, but I attribute my quickness more to my desire and my mental game of not letting a ball get by me than that I was athletically really gifted. You know, Although I felt like I was a good athlete in a lot of sports, but in racket sports, I excelled with just hand-eye and balance. But, But generally speaking, you know, I was a, a late starter, so I had to focus on my mental game. And then years later, becoming a coach, uh, you know, I was certified uh, just after college. I played in one at, at the University of Connecticut. And then going into on the first two years, I was an honors engineering major because that's what my advisor told me to be. He said, math plus science, equals out for the tennis team because tryouts. We're at three o'clock in the afternoon, and that's my Tuesday, Thursday chemistry labs were. So I, the first two years, I couldn't play on the team because of my school. And then when I switched majors to uh, sports science with a concentration in sports marketing, then I could try out for the team, and I had two and a half years of eligibility. So I, I competed and made, you know, made the D1 team as a starter and played singles and doubles. As a walk-on junior at Division one college, that's, that's really difficult especially when you're not recruited. So again, you know, I had to figure out ways to win. And I remember my senior year, I had the best record on the team. And I say that not to impress you, but to impress upon you that, you know, if you put your mind to something, you can do it. And I'm living proof. I feel like I'm the Rudy of tennis, so to speak. You know, the person that shouldn't have been on the high school team, shouldn't have been on the college team, never mind being a, a coach and doing this for a living. So the game was really important to me, but it was difficult for me to quantify and articulate to students of mine, juniors and adults, you know, how they can improve theirs. So, you know, I I would focus a lot on it, but then uh, I was able to quantify it a few years ago into a method I coined, the the 3-2-1 method. And what that method, you know, is, And, um, there's a chapter in my book on it. And and basically it's, uh, working on three types of awareness for the, the adult athlete. It's basically your kinesthetic awareness, which is how the ball feels when it hits the strings, your, your auditory awareness, how it sounds and your visual awareness, you know, where are you seeing the ball and the visual awareness. Although most people, you know, offhand think that's what they're using the most you're actually using that one the least. Yes, tracking the ball is really important, but you have that blindness between three and six feet where when the ball is approaching your strings, you're actually not seeing it anymore, and you have to really feel it, not necessarily see it. If you try to see it, you won't see it. You'll, you'll get really frustrated. And um, what I came up with is I said, okay, um, you know, rather than telling or over teaching or teaching an athlete, what I started to do was have the teaching come from within, kind of let it happen from them rather than making it happen from me. And so Ian, what I would say, if let's say I was uh, I was giving you a lesson on your backhand or something, I'd say, okay, Ian, I'm going to feed you 10 balls and you're going to hit your backhand. And if it um, hits the center of the strings, your, your 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 sweet spot, and I would show them where that is physically, you know, uh, you're going to call out three as soon as you know. And then when it hits just off your center, you call out two, and if it touches anywhere on the frame, you're going to call out. And so then I would feed you 10 balls and you would, you know, hit them. And let's say you'd say, oh, that was a two. That was, that was a three. Oh, that was a one. That was a two. That was a two. You know, that was maybe a 2.5 if you get creative. And a lot of people do that. They'll average the numbers without me asking them to do that. And then when we get to 10, I I say, you know, how many of the 10 did you actually give me the number, call out the number? And it's usually nine or 10, but even if it's nine, you know, people are surprised that they even forgot to do it on one, which means that at that moment, they weren't focusing on point of contact. So then the second thing would be, okay, it was three. I usually then say, was that easy or difficult? Most people say, yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. It was a little difficult at first, but no, I, I got the hang of it. I, I, I get it. And then I say, uh, I'll say to you, Ian, I'll say, okay, um, now, you know, when you're hitting your backhand, you know, do you think your backhand improved. And, you know, usually we, we hit 10 first backhands without me telling them about the three, two, one method, me just having them report to me what their awareness was. And shockingly, like a hundred percent of the time or almost a hundred percent of the time they'll say to me, uh, I felt like the second round after you told me just to be aware of what was happening on the point of contact, my point of contact improved. And then what I say is, well, Ian, I didn't, I didn't tell you how to hit the ball. I just had you prioritize the point of contact by telling me what your awareness was three, two or one. So what I realized was just working on honing their awareness and shifting their focus to something that was a controllable that, by the way, happens to be really important in tennis because you can't hit topspin very well if you're, if you're not hitting the point of contact. You can't place the ball very well if you're not hitting the point of contact solidly. It's hard to uh, work on your height or arc uh, you know if you don't hit a good point of contact. So the point of contact improves, so then, what you do is you apply the three one method to any stroke, any situation, and it doesn't matter if they have a coach or not it's kind of like clay it just molds over what they already know or what they're learning so so the first observation I made was you know uh, you know and let's say you and I did it that your back end would get better without. Specific backhand instructions. You know how to hit a backhand. I'm just kind of guiding it out of you by having you focus on something, and also making you focus 100 percent of the time because I'm I'm asking you to tell me three, two, one. And if you don't say out, uh, call out a number, I may stop you and say, "What was the well, I- second thing?" Is the accuracy of their awareness? If the person shanked the ball in their frame and said three, then I would I would you know uh, question that or pause or, or say, okay, you know, something like that with more hesitation. (laughs) Uh, And then if someone, um, you know, hits a three, what I think is a three and they say, Oh, that was a one or one and a half uh, or two. And I was like, that's like the best two in the world, you know, and I'll crack a joke like that. So I'm more the guide as the coach and I'm guiding their focus and awareness to elements that are important. Then I'll take it to spin. You know, three, two, one on spin, a lot of top spin is a 3, you know, some top spin a 2, not not much at all, a 1. Net clearance, you know, 3 feet over the net, average pro player drives the ball or rallies it 3 feet over the net. So, you know, approximately 3 feet over the net would be a 3, approximately 2 feet would be a 2, approximately 1 foot would be a 1. They call out the number to me. Placement, you know, uh, you know, let's say 3 feet inside the, the, the line to someone's backhand would be a 3. Um, more to their body, you know, a two and to them, so they didn't have to move at all, a one, you know. So and then you can do start to do patterns with that. Deep to the backhand side would be a three, and if you hit your three, then you got to go short to the forehand side. But if you didn't quite hit short angle, then that might be a two or a one. So you have these, you set this this metric, and then I've developed a scorecard. So now, Ian, what I do with you is I, you know, I do. Let's say ten without you knowing, then I'd say, Hey, do ten with the three two one method, and then let's track that. I'll give you ten feeds and you'll track your your speed, your spin, the height, your balance, your point of contact. There's more elements, but those are five of some of the primary ones. And then next week I'll give you ten more. The the highest being ten shots would be obviously thirty. And you'd want to then beat your number from the previous week. So the first week you play, you got 20 or 22 or 25. You want to beat that the next week. So what ends up happening is you're, you're competing against yourself. You're not worried about rankings of friends of yours. You know, you're worried about, okay, I want to focus on my controllables. Then when you get into the match, what, what the interesting thing happens is people start to become less preoccupied with the score and judging whether they did well or not because a lot of people anchor how well they played their playing level based on the result or or the performance and you can't always control the result uh, it's not directly under your control so you know what can you can control I can control my I can control my spin I can control my point of contact I can control the height over the net my placement so you take those elements and then when I asked players on Monday after the weekend tournament, how'd you do in that USDA match? Or how'd you do in that adult singles or doubles match? You know, it's like, you know, how was your point of contact? You know, I, I don't even ask the score. I, I can secretly go online and find out the score if it was reported, <laughs> but I, I, I don't want them uh, thinking that all I'm caring about is, is the score. So I never ask the question of if they won or lost. I ask, how was your point of contact? What elements did you do? Well, what elements can you improve? And a lot of people say, well, you know, my my balance was good. I would give myself an average of a 2.5. Uh, however, my point of contact, for some reason, I would give it a 2. It wasn't right where I needed it to be. And um, my net clearance, I missed a lot of balls in the net. Most of the balls that I did miss, I missed in the net. My, I would give myself a my 1.5 or 2 as far as that. Okay, so let's work on your net clearance you know, let's work on your point of contact. Let's, we can leave the balance alone because you did. So in other words, you're shifting the player's interests on what they need to improve based on a result of a controllable, not something that they have no control over. And what I also, a, a higher level goal is to try to get people to focus on having joy in playing and competing. And obviously with what's going on now today, that that is important. I think when we come back, we're gonna really appreciate the sport even more. And rather than happiness, I used to always think that happiness was really important. And I realized that happiness is not a controllable. And a, a joy is. In other words, happiness is usually tied to result. If, you know, if uh, someone lost the match, usually they're not happy. And someone won the match, you know usually they're happy and and I remember listening to one of your podcasts, and you're right on the same page with how I feel about that is that you should just be happy, be happy that you're competing and i and I call that joy is okay, find the joy in competing, regardless of the result, and focus on your controllables and be able to then gauge what the number of your controllables was, so make it quantifiable. And then, therefore, you have a metric that you can apply to your mental game and get better and that 's what the impetus behind the three to one method is is to quantify something that is intangible or seemingly intangible because if people find it intangible it 's hard to convince them that 's really important, but if they can see that it's tangible, then they can see the benefit of it, then they can uh, value it or. Prioritize it more, and so that was how I came up with um, you know the method. And it 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 is really interesting. There's a lot of funny things that happen along the way. One woman, uh, one adult woman, I was coaching. I had her hit ten forehands cross court. Then I said, "Okay, here's what I want you to do as far as the three two one method. Call out three if it's the center of the strings. You know, two if it's not quite in the center in the sweet spot, and one if it's on the frame." And so I fed the balls and we fed, I fed 10 balls and she didn't say a word. So then I said, I I don't know if you uh, heard my instruction, but I, but I said to say it out loud rather than just think it, because something that you tell the athletes, especially in competition to think it, I just said, no, no, I was trying to see if it hit the point of contact and I never saw the ball once. And I said, oh, well, exactly. You don't want to see it. You're not going to see it. The ball is not on your strings long enough for you to to be able to tell unless you're swinging really slowly or the incoming ball is really slow, which is not the case for, you know, competitive adults. Um, it has to be feel. Once I told her go feel first, uh, auditory awareness sound second and visual awareness zero. Don't even worry about visual awareness. And then she was able to call out the number every time. So, um, that's really important. And that's when you step in as a coach or guide is then you start to guide your player, on that, And so then the, the other um, reason why I came up with the method was that, you know, adult players love to have coach there so that after the match, they, they can get feedback. And I know even at best in some matches that, you know, there's some coaching on changeovers, but really for most USDA matches, there is no coaching. And so the coaching always happened after the fact. And I found that that is not as effective as during the match, and so and obviously you could probably ask Serena and, and her coach Patrick if the <laughs> Open a couple of but but it's much more effective to to coach actually during the match when when it's happening. And so then my epiphany was: let me um, teach you on how to coach yourself during the match. So. When you're playing the point, like, you know, I, I say in the warm up, identify not just the opponent's weaknesses, but as you're rallying, make an observation of are you hitting the ball on the sweet spot? Like, and so in warm up, if you're, let's say, Ian three all the way, contact, then, then you don't need to focus on point of contact. But let's say you felt like your balance was a little stiff, your movement was stiff, you were a little off balance, and okay, I need to focus on my balance. And so as you start the match, you know you're focused on the balance, and, and as you hit each shot, whether it's singles or doubles, I find it a little easier in singles because you're the only person hitting the ball. But it could be done in both. You know you're playing singles, Ian, and then you're hitting the ball, and you're reporting to yourself, "Oh, that was, I was off balance, so that was a one. I was kind of on balance, that was a two. I was on balance there, that's a three. Now you're focused on that, and so you can report to yourself either each shot or an aggregate average after each point what your number was. The reason why that's so important is twofold. You've identified in the warm-up which controllable is the most important on that given day. And then you're not focused on the uncontrollables, like your opponent is cheating you. Like someone is coaching your opponent, like the annoying fans, you know, and the fences are in the window. So, you know, you end up focusing on your controllables without me, the coach, telling the person to focus on their controllables. And then the final benefit of that is they can coach themselves during the match. during the match, rather than have their improvement, beholden to talking to me after the match, when the result was already done. And, you know, some people might say, well, that doesn't that, you know, teach yourself out of a job. And, um, I say, uh, well, th- my goal is not to have a job, My goal is to help people be the best they can be on and off the court. And if this can help, well, then I've uh, I've done my job. Uh, I I find that most people, though, need repetition. They need to experience it themselves. Me just verbally telling them sometimes doesn't work. I do have coaching calls, um, you know, with juniors and adults, but it's usually after we've done a physical lesson on it, so they really understand and have experienced it themselves, and then I can dive in. But you can do it on, you know, video, like uh, just sharing video or Zoom or or Skype or something like that. But it can be done, you know, virtually. But basically, I guide them as much as I can, and then there's so many elements that you can cover with three, two, one um, that it's it's almost endless. Anything that a coach is working on with a player, you can apply the three, two, one method to, and improve your mental game. And so, you know, I, I'm doing now tactics. Strategies, you know, serve out wide, hit to the other side, right? You know, fetter's favorite play. Well, you know, if I was coaching Roger on the three-two-one method, I'd say, okay, serve out wide. That's the three, and it, but it's got to be on the line out wide, and it's got to be up high in the box out wide, not deep in the box, and not a foot inside the line. And then the other side has got to be taken with your forehand, not your backhand. So you got to that encompasses movement and balance. And then it's got to be close to the line on the other side. And then so serves. Okay. How was that? Okay. Well, the the serve was a three, but the other side was like a two or a one. Okay. Well, then you know where you need to focus. And then, you know, um, what I would do if I was coaching a high level athlete like that, I would say there's only one spot, the size of the tennis ball, Ian on the string bed, that would be a three. And, that one spot, if you hit on that one spot, that's a, that's a three. Anything off that one spot's a two, and then anything beyond that is a one. So it's still a three-two-one method, but it's, it's customized to the level of the athlete. In a beginner, you would have the three be a larger spot, and then as they become like world-class player, it would be you know, a very small spot. And same for place on the court as well.
0: With Roger, you you just make sure to give him the the tennis ball size racket face racket, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. was the the
0: the name of that racket again that I I tried for a little while?
1: Oh, yeah. Good, good question. I actually forgot the name of it. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, It's the the Tolson racket, and it's a sweet spot racket. Yeah, it's a sweet spot racket, and uh, um, it's a small racket that's the size of a three. You know, it's, it's it, probably three balls uh, in length and and two balls in width, and yeah, that that racket. I know has used it a little bit to work on her sweet spot. There's other sweet spot trainers out there. There's a a basket one where you can catch it. There's something where you can you know clip to your racket and you know the ball goes in it and you can you can know if it's a three two or or one. Um, but yeah, that one you can actually play with it. But what I want to develop is, is something where you can just put on any racket and the sound, you know, is uncomfortable when you don't hit a three and that <laughs> oh, way you nice. can actually, you know, play with it. But, but the future of that is I could see technology where like the, the, the few years ago where they came up with the vibration dampener and you have the dampener in there and then you can, you know, download that data to your smartphone and it'll tell you the average of, whether it's a three, two, or one on point of contact and other variables, just based on where you're hitting it on the, the frame. Yeah. So I see this as being scalable with technology. But but the thing that excites me the most about it is, and you referenced it in the intro briefly, I, I think, is um, I had set two Guinness World Records in tennis with my, with my identical twin, one for the longest rally, um, we rallied 14 hours and, and 31 minutes and, and then one for the longest volley rally. And that was 30,576 volleys. And <laughs> I, I, I kind of analyzed those records and, you know, came up with the three, two, one method because I was using the method without knowing I was using a method. I knew that the inner game was really important to me. I knew that the mindset for me from my own observation and from what coaches and, and peers have told me is the strongest part of my tennis game. You know, I, I can hit a good serve and I'm a strong foreign. I think I have a good physical game, but my mental game, I really felt like I could beat anybody at least once <laughs> you know? and I would trick myself that if I beat him once out of a hundred times, going to today. you know, and, uh, working on, you know, the rally, what I realized there was no margin for me not to apply focus during the rally, so so in both of them there was no redos, there was no second chances, there was no missing allowed. So the first mental strategy I worked on with our first record was to remove the word miss from my vent- mental vocabulary. I really meditated on that, rehearsed it. I wouldn't, I would say not as long as Billie Jean King used to stare at the ball before big matches, but I would rehearse mentally, you know, removing the word miss. So if you asked me moments before our our first world record. Do I know what the word miss was? I honestly didn't know what it meant. And then the other thing that was really important was that I had to be engaged on every shot. I couldn't mentally take a break. So that's a combination of focus and concentration. Most people think they're synonymous or get them confused. But, you know, concentration is focus over a duration. So focus is one moment in time. I can focus on the point of contact. I can focus on how much spin I had. I can focus on placing the ball to someone's weakness. That's focus. Concentration is. Can you do that with repetition over a two-hour match period? And in this particular case, could I do that over a fourteen-hour and thirty-one-minute uh, time span? And so I knew there was no margin for mental error. You know, I I could miss hit the ball, whatever. But for me, there was no there was no margin for a mental error. So I would say that my point of contact was really solid that day. I I. I felt like I was really there. I felt like I was on balance, but it took me to tell myself similar to Tim Galway, inner games, bounce hit. It, it took me to come up with my own method that resonated with me, which back then wasn't necessarily three, two, one, but has crystallized now into three, two, one. If I was to do it all over again, I would use the three, two, one method more actively. And then say in my mind, after every shot, three, three, Two, two and a half, three. After each shot, or out loud with my exhale, which would also help me with breathing. And as you know, breathing is really important, both mentally for relaxation and physically for uh, you know making sure not to build up lactic acid and cramping. So, so there's a lot of benefit to the three, two, one method. Even calling calling it out, but I, I would say the last um, ten thousand strokes or so, because we had failed the year before. And and when we were getting closer within 5,000 of our previous U uh, S record, I knew I had to have extra focus. So I said um, verbally to myself under the ball over the net and then come on. And it was under the ball was making sure the ball goes up, you know, net clearance and height. And then over the net had enough power that it cleared the net. And then was a little extra motivation to keep going because it was, you know, really draining. And so, you know, that's similar to bounce head. It's similar to three, two, one, um, you know, under the ball, over the net, come on. And that's just not practical though. If you're actually playing a real tennis match or if you're an adult taking lessons or clinics. So three, two, one is, is simple. So I usually say it's easy as three, two, one, but I use, I don't say it's easy as one, two, three, not that it's even that it's overused, but that in tennis, the higher the score, the better. So I figured with, my scorecard you want a higher number just like in tennis you want a higher number so um that's why you can you know can write down these these scores and and then you know track them over time and then you can have fun with it you know as i you know you can compete with your friends you can compete with yourself oh last week i was at a 25 out of 30 and this week i was at 29 you know and uh now i'm at 30 and i'm at 33 weeks in a row so now i'm going to move to another 3 two, one element that i can control and uh, and then with our second record, the 30,576 volleys, it was, you know, that was brutal. My mind couldn't go away from the volley because we were so close to the net because we had to, you know, keep up a certain pace because we were trying to raise money for uh, charity, save the children. That was the whole point. So um, for both records, since they both supported charities, you know, I had a, a goal that was beyond my own ego for accomplishment, but to honor you know, uh, our deceased uh, uh, tennis mentor's legacy and his memory and raise money for charity. And it's so interesting, Ian, you know, in life, you know, there's the lesson off the court I realize is, you know, the, your best dreams and goals, you know, are the ones that don't push your own ego or prioritize it, but rather are for a greater good. And then, then your body and your mind don't have, roadblocks because it goes beyond yourself and therefore you're not afraid. You're not afraid of missing. You're not afraid of getting dehydrated. You're not afraid of cramping or getting an in, in injury. Um, and you know, it's hard to find that motivation, but, but having a passionate purpose and, you know, really having drive toward your purpose is, is so key. And so, you know, for tennis athletes to find that, whatever that is, and and my thing was, you know, for our first record, the only reason why we attempted it was because, you know, our tennis mentor had uh, passed away uh, at the young age of 42. And we were devastated. Ian, and and um, I know, you know, a little bit of the story, but but it was you know, that was the whole reason behind the record period uh, was let's do something with our talent that that's beyond ourselves that would honor his legacy and raise money for charity and uh, for both records and so there you feel like you can accomplish something seemingly impossible and make it possible um, by having something like that that really inspires you so for those tennis players out there that that are listening to this you know you don't have to wait for something like that tragically to happen my epiphany was that I can accomplish these extraordinary things uh, if there's something really challenging going on in my life that I have to get through. And with what's going on right now, you know, I really believe people can become great tennis players. They can Mm -hmm. accomplish great things right now. Uh, and, and, and usually, you know, people, you know, set records or be the best that they can be, uh, in two, um, arenas. One is based on fear, which is what you, don't necessarily want to do but 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 let's say a lion was chasing me i would i would win an olympic gold medal in sprinting you know <laughs> because of fear but then the other <laughs> is if i'm in the olympics competing against someone and it's a game you know that's why in the olympic games uh, the crescendo is a lot of world records that are set or broken why is that well because each of us are, are pushing each other to be the best we can be and nothing less will get a record. And so either fear or this competition. And so my thing is to turn that competition inward, you know, rather than external, which then can lead to jealousy and envy and negative emotions. It it leads to personal improvement and personal challenge if you direct it inwardly. And so that's why with the three to one method, I get them to be their best from the inside out, kind of like inside out coaching rather than outside in.
0: Love it. I love your your passion for, it sounds like it's a big kind of principle and part of your, your mindset, your uh, philosophy of kind of finding the most essential, uh, the most kind of foundational elements and then focusing tenaciously on those things, whether it be quality of contact or balance or heights and uh, depth of shots and that sort of thing. In your experience coaching over the last several decades, how... Yeah, 25 years,
1: I can't believe it.
0: Where do tennis players drop the ball on that? In other words, what, what do they tend to focus on instead of those, those fundamental kind of core base parts of the pyramid?
1: Yeah. So what I find is people have focus. So I think it's not that people are not focused. And even when people say ADD, I think that's, i say that's a sign of uh, brilliance and intelligence because you're starting to get bored with one thing you shift on to another thing. It's actually, you know, a lot, there's a lot of uh, brilliance behind that. Uh, so I think it's not necessarily a negative thing, but, but mo- most people, it's not that they don't have focus and if they do, that's important, but it's, focusing on one thing at a time and focusing on the right thing that they can control. So if they are focusing on hoping that their opponent double faults on match point, unfortunately (laughs) that focus is, um, an area that they have zero control over directly I mean, you could try to distract the server by bouncing around, but that's not good sportsmanship. It might not work. And so the little litmus test I use with athletes I coach is I say, when you arrive at match point, do you secretly hope that your opponent double faults? If you are, your focus is in the wrong spot. Hmm. And if you're neutral, that's okay. So that one would be a one. The neutral would be a two. The three would on focus would be, I want that person not only to get the, Serve in. I want that person to get a really good serve in because I'm going to end with a crescendo and I'm going to thump the ball across court or hit it down the line and come to net or chip and charge. I'm going to make this ball. And it's kind of like bring it on. It reminds me of when the Chicago Bears had Refrigerator Perry and they were playing against the Patriots in the Super Bowl a long time ago. And, um, you know, on the one yard line, they would put this big, you know, 350, 400 pound uh, lineman as a running back. Everybody in the stadium, including the entire Patriot team, knew what was coming, that Refrigerator (laughs) Perry was going to get the ball, but they said, it doesn't matter, we're going to stick to our strategy, and sure enough, he would score a touchdown, and it's the same type of thing. So the first thing is, you know, focusing on the right things, something that you can control, and point of contact is a really good one to start with for those that prioritize balance. Like I find that track athletes, they like to prioritize balance. Um, other hand-eye coordinated athletes that play let's say table tennis or um, squash or, or paddle they like to focus on point of contact there's a different you kind of go with also what they want to work on so it's uh, it's like um, an interchange but but the other thing is they try to do everything right Ian rather than one thing right and so they are working on like let's say 10 things and okay, well, how was this? And how was that? And did I hit it over there? And was it over the net? And, and it's too many all at once. And so and then it's like paralysis of analysis. It's, they, get, they get so uh, mentally hung up on that. And what was so fascinating was um, I read this research study was released on ESPN.com recently. And they, they did a study, Ian, that um, they took a world-class uh, uh, chess player and playing chess, for two hours burnt the same amount of calories as Roger Federer competing tennis for one hour.
0: And if you think about <laughs> awesome. that,
1: that's incredible. That's incredible stat. And, and, and I can validate that because I lost between 12 and 18 pounds on my first world record when I rallied for 14 hours and 31 minutes. And my brother was hitting it right to me. <laughs> I my my mental energy burnt most of my calories, not my physical energy. Um so that goes to show how important it is. And the other thing I think there is is society. Society, in my opinion, has misdefined the word multitasking. And multitasking when the word first came out was from supercomputers or for computers, is that they said that they were able to multitask. But really, it's not multitasking it's task shifting. So when someone says they're multitasking, they're really not like they're they're shifting their task from one to another back to the other one so quickly that it, it seems like they're doing both simultaneously, but really they're task shifting. And so most people think, oh, I can multitask and they actually, hey, I can multitask, I can do five things at once. That's actually something they shouldn't be bragging about, but actually it should be the other way around. Let me focus on one thing, do it really well, and, and then focus on the next thing. And focus on the next thing. I remember there was a scene in the social network, the, the movie about Facebook, and Mark Zuckerberg was w- walking by some programmers. And as he was walking by, the programmer stayed focused right on programming and didn't move. And he said, okay, that guy's hired. He can work for me. He has really good focus. He wasn't distracted and looked to see who was behind him walking by. It's the same, same type of thing with this. So I'd say it's being aware of you know, your controllables. So it's like, you know, your point of contact and then picking, you know, what which one right now is the most important for you to improve. What needs the most work? Oh, okay. It needs my net clearance because the last match, most of my errors were in the net. Okay. We'll focus on, on a uh, height. And, and then you say, you know, that if they apply their focus consistently the whole match, which is not easy, but with practice can work, and, uh, you know, and they can make that into a, this habit that's almost subconscious i think world-class players like federer you know do versions of three two one that are subconscious they're not necessarily calling out three two one but i can tell you if you ask them at the end of the point how was your point of contact on that give me an average you know three being the highest they they would be able to tell you jokovic should be able to tell you that means they're doing that subconsciously they've they've got it you know where they already are are, are doing it just like like walking and the example I use is, you know, walking is one of the most complicated things that a human being can do. Um, yet we take it for granted because we've been walking for so many years. Uh, so we can walk and chew gum. We can walk and talk on the phone. So one of them, you're not using your mind anymore. You can walk without thinking at all. So you can focus just on the conversation. Uh, and so that, in a way, is multitasking, but you're not using any mental energy of the walking part of it and so that's why in Tennessee I say pick the one element that you can control and then stick to that one element until you've owned it and then move on to the other element or another love element. it Angela
0: so tell yeah. us about yeah. tenacity would love to hear about the book what was your inspiration behind it and what can people expect to learn or, or come away with after going through it like I have
1: yeah. Uh, so I started a blog tenacity with two N dot org. And if you go through the blog, basically very similar content to what's in the book tenacity, you can get it on, on Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And, and basically, you know, I've always wanted to write a book. And I remember telling my brother at you know, who now works full time for slave children, but he's always been teaching part-time tennis. His mind is, is always on tennis and, and, uh, I had said to him, I'd love to write a book to inspire others to be the best they can be. And I had coined um the word goals. I broke it down instead of smart goals, which was kind of difficult. I broke down goals, the word itself, into grand, optimistic, accountable, long-term and stretch goals. And so there's there's a little bit of that in the book as well. But I wanted to always write a book. And we had failed the first year doing the world record. We just set the US record of nineteen thousand four hundred and ninety shots. And so my brother said set the world record, then you could write your book. So, you know, I, I've, I've always had my mind on inspiring others through trying to accomplish something that no one has ever done before. And then you have a platform. What are you going to say that's of any value? And so that's why in this, there's, there's um, mindset moments that I reflect on each of the world record attempts and world records, you know, takeaways or things that, I, that I've used and then purpose points. Each chapter has a purpose point. So there's 30 mindset moments because there's 30 chapters and 30 purpose points. And I'm developing an online course now where people take the book as a course, you know. And awesome. I think people, when they watch videos, you know, they can they can get value and appreciate it, you know. Um, but yeah, the world records and kind of setting the records and then trying to set an example with the records for people to be the best they can be on and off the court. And what I find is it applies to everyday life and it also applies to not just tennis players, but, but any athlete, you know, although as you saw, you know, all the pictures in the book are from, um, uh, famous uh, photographers, art sites, and Cynthia Lum. Uh, and I have the rights to use those photos and no tennis players in there for the most part. Uh, and so it's definitely geared toward tennis players for sure. And I'm hoping that it's something that people find, uh, value in when they when they read it and then all to all the students I've ever taught juniors and adults that it certainly inspired me that something like the two three two one method was you know something that resonated with them and so I felt that I if I can get that method out there uh that it you know people it can help their game and help people coach themselves
0: yeah, absolutely. We did a fantastic job with it. I've enjoyed reading it very much. I love that the chapters are very focused and condensed in a, like a very easy to consume uh format and yet they all kind of pack a punch as far as insight and having something actionable uh to follow. So, congrats on the book. Uh, really amazing job with it. And really appreciate you sharing your your insights with with our listeners today any uh, kind of final thoughts where besides tenacity dot org where else can people go to to check out what you're up to
1: yeah um, you know so um, I'm on Twitter a tenacity book with two ends and then on Facebook uh, tenacity with two ends and then people can email me if they want to find out more angelo at tenacity uh, dot org so yeah I'm gonna you know get more and more online now it's definitely a passion of mine to to blend technology with with tennis and with tenacity
0: love it well definitely go check that out everybody Tenacity tenacity.org and tenacity the book on amazon.com barnesandnoble.com and again that's tenacity with two n's in it highly recommend you pick it up and check it out and make sure to go say hi to to angelo as well. Angela, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, It's been fantastic. I know people will enjoy it and keep up the good work with all the support and insight that you're providing people during this this difficult time. People need your positivity and your message more than ever. So thank you for sharing. Thanks so much, Dean. I really appreciate it. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube where we are the number one resource in the world providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care and good luck with your tennis.